This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Content is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. No one likes to be sold. So I think the whole key is to do something that has an intrinsic value. Uh, And look, the thing about location is it tells you so much about the person. And when you know enough about somebody, you can serve them something that's not an intrusion, but that's a service. It's almost a service they'd pay for. What? They pay for ads? I'm like, yeah, they just might not think of those ads. So look, you're walking down the street and I know you like this certain kind of red wine. And I send you a message that said, hey, you know that wine you really like? It just came in over at that store. And you're like, fantastic, thank you. Now, that was an ad. But I know so much about you that it was teed up as a service. And I I think marketing as a service, not an unwanted intrusion, is where marketing is going to go. So if you had a chance to sit and talk for an hour with someone who has sat at literally every chair of the content circle, from creation, operations, to data, what could you learn? Coming up, you'll hear exactly that with a messenger turned advertising underdog turned successful entrepreneur. What is good versus bad content exactly? Why the journey may be more important than the destination. And two extraordinary stories about Gary Vee and Donald Trump. From New York City, you're listening to Content Is Your Business, conversations with industry leaders and influencers covering the strategy and innovation of brand storytelling. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Exciting episode today. I uh, got John in the studio here to talk all things what he loves and does not love about content and wants us to change in 2019. We're going to dive into that. We got my uh, co-host today, Natasha Cholatin-Brown. Hey there. And Michael Villasenor, ECD over at Hearst. How's it going? Uh, we're going to dive in with the first question of our 2019 naughty list and what we don't want to do and what we're going to change. And you're going to hold us to it all podcast long. Listeners at home, minus one point if we say these words, what are the three buzzwords that need to die in 2019? Okay. Uh, Transparency, uh, storytelling, and transformation, which also counts as digital transformation. So any of those, um, because if we're going to talk about content, um, we need some new cliches to come up with this year. So why don't we just start them off right now and then people can copy them and say them endlessly. uh, So no one actually has to think of anything because they just spit out, you know, the buzzwords of the year. I want to ask one question though to that. So are you are we getting rid of them because they're overused? Or are we getting rid of them because you feel like they're not true and they're fake words? And may I add one thing to that? What is content in your definition? Just That's to good, clarify, yeah. uh, that was going to be one of my questions. <laughs> I don't know. You know, okay, content uh, is uh, is something that someone creates. Um. And I think we need a new word. It sounds like something you buy by the pound. And uh, wait, don't journalists sell by the word? I don't like that idea. Um, And I think there's too much of by the pound out there. Uh, And we need 
we need a, new, a word for something that means good content that I actually want to consume. Uh, so maybe that can be one of our uh, buzzwords that we create for 2019. Let's come up with the word for good content. You know, G, is it GC? I don't know. We'll come up with something. And what is in your mind? Um, yeah, let's talk about for for those three words: transformation, transparency. Yeah, I want to get back into that. Is, are they overused? That's, that's or, minus two points right there. Isn't it? I know, I know. <laughs> but I right. take the point. That is For those of us keeping score at home, and I'm gonna go, and I'm gonna go to the third one: storytelling. <laughs> yeah. But for those three uh, do not words, are they overused, or are they just not valid? Are they missing the mark? When words get overused, they lose their meaning, and they become uh, lazy. And so after a while, um, I, I think, it, you know, when you first hear something, then you're like, oh, yeah, tell me about it. I want to learn about it. And then after a while, we get this shorthand that we think is going to be efficient and sum up a bunch of things, but gets just used by people that don't even know what it really means and just want to sound like they know what they're talking about. So then we have to get rid of them. So that way people actually have to say what they mean. Or come up with a new buzzword. There's always the risk of that, right? You know, a word becomes too generic and then it morphs into something even more generic down the line. So what what should one of the words be for 2019? You mean new words? Yeah. Now we can't use those. Uh, well, that's going to be a big problem for a lot of people. What should the buzzwords be? Well, let's look at what's going on. I, I do think separating out content by the pound from something good, uh, that's a, that, that, I think that's a great distinction because it's gotten into too much of the volume. Um, and uh, I don't know. We have to come up with some other ones. But does this mean – but let's, let's unpack that because that's – but I, I love what you're saying because to me it sounds like this. It's the difference between drinking a craft beer – and a right like a mass produced like what what or or any product not you just said it's a craft beer exactly you it just is, called it something different right right, right? So is that is, what we're looking for in content yes. something that's unique craft content there we go <laughs> we're done, done. Boom. <laughs> someone put a tm on that real yeah. fast I, I, well, I, I do like what you're saying i there's and i've never really thought of it this way working in newspapers for the last 8 years is there's a carefulness of the mind that we're starting to become more aware of for a long time i'd left facebook i'd left twitter um i didn't watch a movie for an entire year i tried really hard to be very focused on what i consumed um i didn't watch anything around the election and now i'm forcing myself to sort of reintegrate um there's a carefulness when you talk about content uh the hum of a bus going by all the way to the social media overload we're just consuming constantly. We're not really thinking what's good. And so when you think about your day-to-day, -day, what is good content that you appreciate doing? And it could be a lean-back experience. It could be a lean-in phone experience. What is that? There's different ways to define it, right? There's the de definition of, as I said, uh, it's something I, that's got an insight that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. There's a behavioral way to define it, shareable content. Mm -hmm. um, people say snackable content, which is another way to look at it. So I think the more we can get into uh, the different flavors of of what we're talking about, the 
the more we'll all be communicating and saying what we really mean and not, you know, uh, like what the Eskimos have 37 words for snow, right? Mm. It's not all just snow. And I think when you, when something's new, then it's just snow, but then at an advanced level, once you get more familiar with it, you need to move on to, well, Hey, it's not all just snow. There's all different flavors and we need to flavorize content. When you so let's talk. I want to find out what is the content that you deem good or craft. Like, what are you? What's what? Are, give me three things so that we know where what the kinds of content you. Let's talk about what are the kind of content you consume, and then what is the kind of content that's actually moved you that you're like, yeah. Now that is something I haven't seen. Good question. Okay, so I'm one of those people. I know this can shock you. Short attention span. Incredible. Not ADD, ABCDEFG, one of those people. And uh, I scan through things and then I actually stop and read if I think it's interesting. Um, so, well, I picked up um, the, the um, Scott Galloway's new book, Four. And Scott Galloway is a genius. He's an NYU professor, marketing thought leader. Uh, and I thought – I bought it like three months ago and it just kind of sat somewhere. And then I was uh, in the Caribbean for a couple of days this weekend and I picked up the book and I started reading. I went, damn, this guy's smart. And you know, it's about Amazon and Facebook and Google and it, it, it really – and Apple – and uh, I thought I knew whatever there was to know about all those companies, but now I really understand what's going on in the world. And that book, like I like things that make me feel dumb. You know, mm -hmm. I, I remember I was in a meeting and content doesn't have to be me reading or watching mm -hmm. something. It could be just sitting around. I remember being in a meeting and thinking, wow, I'm the dumbest person in the room. I love that. It's so great because I'm learning all these things. So that's my – that's what I I like. Um, I, I don't know what other – how other people view good content. I love everybody else's opinion. But no, I think we'd love yours. Like what's – what else – is there anything memorable on digital or anything else that stood out to you like that you're like – a movie. A movie or be I mean the book is or a great it's yeah. <laughs> it's great cuz I love the book. It is it's, it's all content these days, right? Um so the a book is one sort of medium, you know, a movie, a film is another one, a branded content thing, a documentary on like what are the anything else? What are what else what what draws you? I just saw this uh I have a small interest in black book, so I have a little press card, and that's very helpful, you guys. So people invite me to things and send me movies and things like that. And one of those a couple of days ago was this documentary on somewhere 1938, around then, uh, Madison Square Garden was filled to capacity with these Nazi sympathizers doing speeches who were American with all the pomp and circumstance you would have thought you were in Berlin and right in the middle of World War II and no one knows about it. And they hmm. then they did this whole documentary on it and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And it also made me think, you know, that happened here and that could happen again and it really made me think about 
about the world today and it's incredibly relevant and shows there's a universality to certain things um, and things are more the same than they are different people are more people and so that's that that was a good uh, and not that it has to be a documentary film you know it can be commercial film too mm-hmm. um, but I want to get to know you like tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got there Okay, so one day I went I was in college and I couldn't get a job in one of those recessions and the worst job in New York at that point was being a messenger. Um and it was all like college kids like me and retirees. Uh no one no one between uh, 21 and 65. Uh and um I'm going delivering these packages up and down Madison Avenue and it's like cool places and those people are good looking and funny and they all look like they're having fun. I go, what is this? This is an ad agency. I don't know. I could do that. Uh, Then I go back to the dusty messenger pool, which was a pit. And I swear, I look down and there's this, this, old dog-eared copy of David Ogilvie's Confessions of an Advertising oh, I Man. <laughs> I swear I pick it up. What it was doing there, I have no idea. And I start reading and I go, I could do this. <laughs> and that's how I got into that's the amazing. business. That's amazing. It's an incredible book. It's an incredible similar. book. Yeah. You know what's great about the book is it's not just a lecture academically on rules and though everyone knows that part of it, it was interesting and it was like a re, you know an interesting read it was entertaining and we've lost those characters and those big personalities and when i always say we didn't people didn't go into this business to become accountants um and it's become much more corporatized and there aren't any there aren't those you know giants and big personalities that there were as much when i got into it so what, what's what's what, why why do you think that is it societal shift in terms of the way we're going in terms of like there's has to be an era we're in an era of conformity you could argue that that there is a sometimes individuality shunned a little bit for being too like people can't handle a personality or is it the case of it's just shifted like what what why because uh, the agency business is a crappy business and those people are starting Facebook <laughs> instead of agency ABC. Um, so – and then also it's more quantitative, which is less personality driven um, and the decision making. When I got into the business, it was the CEO. There actually was no such thing as a CMO. Um, it was a head of advertising and then the CEO would have the relationship with the agency and pick the campaign and that's why the stuff was really good. But now you've got a committee of middle management people and so marketing um, it, it has gotten to me much more watered down because any committee is going to water something down and kind of play not to lose as opposed to play to win. So – the client side has lost the personality at the top and so is the agency side. So you have committees interacting with committees and you don't get anything all that inspirational that way. It's not how any of these startups started. They were, none of them were started by committees. We all know who the founders are of all of these big, you know, Jeff Bezos and whoever in all these companies, Steve Jobs, and they and that's what the industry was and isn't anymore. Are in the advertising. 
Tell us a little about your company currently. We're, you're chairman at Cedo. Is that how you pronounce yep. it? Um, yeah. And what is what is Cedo Mobile? Like, what are you what are you working on? So Cedo is a location based uh, technology and media company. I'm chairman. It's on Nasdaq. So I have to make sure that what I say has been screened by lawyers. So <laughs> Did they screen I, the buzzwords? Um, they love the buzzwords. They have an l- approved <laughs> list. Lawyers <laughs> would love the buzzwords. Ever I'm allowed, to, I'm allowed to say all of these things. And, um, and that's – you know it's not 100 percent of my time because um, I'm not a, technically an employee. Um, yeah. I'm just really curious. Between David Ogilvy, the book – uh, which I think one of the best qualities of him, I believe, is before someone would announce they're leaving the company, he would write a really nice letter saying, thank you for your contribution, which is something that's lost in current sort of uh, marketplace. Between that book and Cedo Mobile, what, what what happens there for you? And and what do you start discovering as a result of getting into the advertising business? Well, you know, it's interesting because David Ogilvy was a creative guy, but he also was a research guy. Yeah. And he put those two religions together, or let's call that, let's say, call it data, okay? Um, data science, even, because he did a lot of test and learn. Uh, and I, I think that there hasn't been a success story of somebody putting those two religions together and integrating them coherently since David Ogilvy. And now I think he'd be more relevant now than even he was then. And I think that's what the world needs. And it was not – there's creative people from one side and then there's these research people and they're always at odds. The two, the two work together. And I, I really think you have to have both in one brain. I don't think you can take a person who's culturally all about the data and a person who's culturally all about creative and expect them to find this common ground. I think the integrator has to be all in one brain in order to create a culture and that we don't have today. So so CEDO is more quantitative. It's, hey, I can – because where you've been physically is a bigger commitment than what you clicked on. And visited virtually. For me to go down the street to the coffee shop is more meaningful as a data point than for me to look up the coffee shop online uh, or like it on Facebook or anything like that, right? So there's a power to that, and also it's a it's it's blending the physical and the digital because I might be tracking you. Digitally, however, you physically went. And I think that power of the integration of those two is huge today. I mean, look at what Amazon's doing, opening stores and things like that. Um, so I think what's, what, what CEDO's doing, um, that area is, is, is hyper relevant today. Um, and uh, the other thing I'd say is, um, I think that what, in the early 90s and the late 80s, account planning, brand planning kind of became the, the weapon of creative agencies because it allowed us to take research and get an insight that led to good ideas and also controlled the research process where uh, somebody didn't hire some you know focus group moderator to who asked 11 housewives what they think the ad should say and then decided we should run they should be the creative director that was terrible and i think the 
the quantitative insight is the new secret weapon. It's the new brand planner. But it's not just data. It has to be an insight. So if I find out in this incredible insight that is predictive of, a, of, of, of something in the future, that's the new rock star in marketing. And it's the same role that the qualitative person who did that had. So I think that quantitative insight is the new kind of secret weapon of marketing. If you want to quiet a room and have everyone be rapt attention and say that person's valuable, let's keep them around. That's, that's what they're doing. Uh, speaking of where we've uh, started from and where we're going, I am in the hole because I'm minus three. Everybody else is in positive points because I've been, I've I've hit three <laughs> buzzwords I shouldn't have. I need a snack. We're gonna get dive into the snack you brought for all of us. Can you tell us what you brought for us and uh, why you chose to bring it today? Uh, I got an email uh, mm-hmm. a couple days ago that said there's this tradition to bring food, and I had this project I was working on yesterday all day and then I had this dinner this dinner and I'm like oh man that was like the hardest question of the month I'm like well I could buy something a few days now in advance but I don't know if it'll be any good by then so but I'm booked wall to wall so when am I going to buy something what am I going to buy so on my way to my meeting this morning I thought well croissants okay Mm. Uh, and uh, I bought them and because uh, there's this fika, this uh, Scandinavian bakery that makes good croissants. And then I went to my meeting and everyone, of course, thought it was for them. And mm-hmm. uh, I lost half a croissant. So I hope you'll forgive me when you see that it's missing. There's a half a croissant missing. Uh, and that's the story. So minus one point for you. Now minus three, minus one for John. You guys are still at zero. Let's eat some croissants. Awesome. Coming up, why the journey may be more important than the destination, plus that story about Gary Vee. Hi, it's Mark Rico. I want you to listen to this. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. It's a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates, and that place is ZipRecruiter dot com slash mouth media network hiring used to be hard multiple job sites stacks of resumes a confusing review process but today hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done zip com slash mouth media network zip recruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards but they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology zip recruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job as applications come in zip recruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Mouth Media Network. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. (music) 
So, John, thank you so much for bringing these croissants, my all-time favourite food. What I'd love to do right now, could we, could we just step back and talk about John and your relationship with content? And so share, share if you wouldn't mind, you know, what's that path been um, from then to now? What are the common threads of content and your relationship with it? Well, I'm going to talk about commercial content because that's what I know the best. Um, well, I think when when I started Kirschenbaum Bond, um, it was really kind of anti advertising, um, and in a in an era when that was unusual. I mean, now that's kind of you know par for the course, and we really tried to do um, work that people didn't even think was advertising. Um, and uh, it, it, it had some uh, – it, it was something people wanted to consume or that had a, um, you know, had a life of its own. I remember the first campaign we did was all about uh, – was for Kenneth Cole's all about these current events, um, not like what he did recently, uh, which is him writing his own ads. Uh, but this is back <laughs> then. Always uh, a good idea when they write their own ads, right? Yeah. Uh, hey, that I think I can do this. I remember half my job was just to have him kill his ideas. But anyway, um, <laughs> and and it was all about a, a view of current events. And every time we'd put something out, we had no media plan. We'd wait for something to happen. Amelda Marcos had that whole, you know, thing with the shoes. And the first ad was Melda Marcos bought twenty seven hundred pairs of shoes. She could have at least had the courtesy to buy a pair of ours. Signed Kenneth Cole and. You know, that got picked up by the news. We just wait. We had no media plan. Wait for something to happen. That was viral before viral videos. It was viral Mm -hmm. before viral. It was all about word of mouth and third party goods. All the stuff today that we talk about, but there was no internet. Um, But I I, I take that to the present day and I'm at CEDAR that doesn't create content, but I'll tell you what they do is set the stage to do really good content. That also doesn't feel like advertising, right? Because no one likes to be sold. So I think the whole key is to do something that has an intrinsic value. Uh, And look, the thing about location is it tells you so much about the person. And when you know enough about somebody, you can serve them something that's not an intrusion, but that's a service. It's almost a service they'd pay for. People go, what? They pay for ads? I'm like, yeah, they just might not think of them as ads. So look, you're uh, Natasha, you're walking down the street and I know you like this certain kind of red wine. And I send you a message that said, hey, you know that wine you really like? It just came in over at that store and you're like, fantastic, thank you. Now that was an ad, but I know so much about you that it was teed up as a service. And I, I think marketing as a service, not an unwanted intrusion, is where uh, marketing's going to go, and now I'm going to I'm going to go back to content again for a second because we all have uh, some publishing people here, and I've been in that business unfortunately, um, and you know I think one of the things is there isn't um, very often enough ad revenue to justify actually something I want to read or, or view and and how we we solve that problem. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that uh, this idea of marketing as a service, right, 
uh, and 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 things people really care about that have value as opposed to volumes of stuff, I, I think is even more um, relevant today than it's ever been. So I'd like to maybe throw that out and talk about the publishing side for a minute if we can do that. Yeah, let's let's talk about it. Michael is obviously deep in it, and uh, Natasha, you have as well. Yeah. By all means, jump in. I mean, we were talking about this a bit earlier. Um, was how do you create a sustainable uh, revenue model mm -hmm. in an era where it's hard to get? Well, there's a perceived notion that people don't pay for content or won't, aren't willing to subscribe. Um, it, it, I can I take a stab at this. I think it's a self-inflicted wound. Um, advertising went in one direction, and publishers followed. And now we're kind of sitting at the apex of, or the junction of like, how do we change that? And how do we go to a, a subscription model? What's you? You have an incredible story arc in your career. Um, is this what you know goes around comes around? Is this a s cyclical sort of nature of the business, or are we actually seeing a very big change that not everyone's prepared to figure out? I love the idea of paying for good content because, from the advertiser standpoint, somebody must actually be engaged if they paid for it. And probably going to pay more attention to anything that they consume, including including the advertising. Um, so that makes perfect sense. You know, I, 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 there's this distinction between all the regulatory uh, activity about identifying what's native and what's a paid ad and what's not a paid ad. And I don't think, you know, this is my point of view now for journalists. You all may throw things at me, but um, – I don't think the distinction is between, well, that's legitimate journalism because it's not paid for and that's an ad because it's paid for. I think the consumer divides it up into simply good and bad. I'd rather have good paid than bad, uh, you know, it, it, real journalism. Um, I just want it to be good. And I think that's the distinction we need to focus on. But don't you uh, feel – For you, good has to have utility of some sort. That's kind of your foundation to it. Yeah, I, I have to want to engage with it and then who cares if it's paid or not. That's the bar that should matter. Um, and by the way, one of the issues with that, I'm going to go into my my publishing hat, is um, what's rewarded, right? So if we look at display advertising, um, I was saying, you, you know, Natasha could have never in her life clicked on an ad, but she's a a, you know, a, an attractive demographic and I'm going to keep firing ads at her all day simply because I can make money at it. That's called spam, okay? And there's no feedback loop. Whereas opposed to search, what, what built Google was the integrity of the feedback loop and that it has to add value and you mostly can't game that system, right? And so anything has to earn its way onto the front page of search if it's not paid um, by virtue of it it actually delivering value to people. And I think that all advertising needs to uh, needs to be more in that model, that there needs to be a feedback loop in order to serve me something, right? As opposed to just firing these endless ads with at lower and lower CPMs and lower and lower click-through rates because it's just abusive. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But let me I want to challenge I want to challenge you a little bit. At Michael at Hearst, what is your wh which is your biggest publication on digital? On digital uh Cosmo. So uh, Cosmo. Let's yeah. take okay. Let's start with Cosmo. 
let's say that I'm reading a review of something on Cosmo. Like we're talking about good and bad content, right? If I'm a consumer and I'm going on to Cosmo to read a review of a product, isn't it? Don't I have the right to know if that is a paid placement? Meaning how would I know otherwise whether that review is legitimate or that somebody was paid to say something good and positive about it? Now, of course, that's one type of content, but we're talking about publishers. It could be a video review. Do, doesn't the consumer have – because otherwise, if everything we're based on is trust and authenticity, like forget native – all of that stuff. People come to Hearst. People come to Bloomberg. People come to – even when the content you consume, don't you feel like there has to be a level level of authenticity and trust? And then the consumer can decide whether that's good content, but at least they knew that it was paid or not paid. No. Because you're interfering with the invisible hand of the market, which I believe works on its own. Influencers, only 7% of the influencer content. And it's supposed – you're supposed to tell me mm-hmm. if you're an influencer, just using that as an example, yeah. if I'm being paid, but only 7% do. Right. OK. And I don't mm. think we need to regulate that because what happens is they shoot themselves in the foot. Because consumers are smart, not stupid, and they figure out this guy's shilling, and then they stop paying attention, and then the guy goes out of business. So you're saying, so I think the market regulates that better than we can. That's my opinion. That's why I think it's about good and bad, not paid and unpaid. Um, I mean, I was thinking about like the classic uh, Vogue, right? September issue, right? Largely ads, and that's the content people want to consume. That's right. There's no Um, difference between the ads and the editorial. Correct. Um, I to- couldn't couldn't agree more. Now, sorry, guys. No, no, no. I, 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 but those I, are ads. That's not mm-hmm. in the. That's a different type of content. Yeah. That's not the same as like the written correct, article. Correct, correct, correct. That's a different type. Yeah, to your point. And actually, in Europe now, they're forcing the celebrities, the influencers, to regulate and to disclose. And a lot right. of American celebrities are starting to catch on. But yeah. so I think that's like an interesting dynamic. That like you know. But What's... I think for the for the influencer market, as consumers, you come to it assuming that they're paid, don't you? I mean, I wonder does every basketball player have to have a label saying that those shoes are a sponsored thing, right? But that's dis- but that's public yeah. are already disclosed. They've signed yeah. a contract, so even if it's yeah. in a photo or a post, it's all disclosed. they've signed a deal. But not everyone knows that. Not everyone knows that they're paid to. I mean, you know, originally Sonny Vaccaro is the guy when he was working for Nike, but I think went to Adidas. Yeah. And he used to just give the shoes to college coaches. Then they started paying the coaches, but no one knew that. And all of a sudden they'd go, hey, look, they're wearing those shoes. Uh, so where does that end? That's why I don't think it can be regulated personally. Man. Can I, I want to find and out. And also, by yeah. the way, in a – now I'm going to use one of those words. Uh-oh. Transparent. Uh-oh. Minus two. Today, Minus two. Transparency. People find – I think people find out and learn to look at these things uh, because the – mark because it's a more transparent world. I said Minus, three. Minus three. Minus yeah. three. We're even. I'm no yeah. longer <laughs> last – I'm tied right. for last place. So can you in very uh, – you can do it in very quick form. Tell us the, the stops along the way from the beginning of your ad career when you first read that David Ogilvy, Ogilvy book. Tell us of the stops in the ad, what agencies you worked at and what positions you were in before you got to CETO. Uh, all the agencies I worked uh, at yeah. are out of business. First, they became letters and then they disappeared. Jordan Case McGrath, 
which became JCM, which became Arnold now or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so, um, no, I, I never worked at really great agencies. And then, so I had this cynicism of, uh, the business, you know, uh, <laughs> and I uh, thought, well, what, uh, you know, let, let, why don't we start something that, that uses that cynicism, uh, to kind of create. And that's why we were early in guerrilla marketing and mm-hmm. we did the first pop-up store and all these sorts of this idea of it shouldn't feel like, like advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always use that September Vogue example, which is fantastic where, um, the advertising is so relevant that it, people are buying it. They wouldn't even buy it without the ads. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where you want to get to. Right. right. Um, that's a good definition of content yeah. in this day and age. If if it's branded content, what you just said, I think that's a yeah. Really or valid. you'd pay for it. Right. Would you actually pay for advertising or marketing? I just want to jump into Cedo. So, like, in terms of your, in terms of Cedo, like, what drew you to that, and like, why this? So, in a very crowded marketplace where there's a million different products and a million different sort of tech companies, what what drew you to this? From like, what did you learn that you're like, we need yeah. this? Well, there's no doubt that, you know, um, it it finally has been the year of mobile a few times after 10 years of saying it was going to be. Um, But when you say who's kind of the location-based data and media brand, most people draw a blank unless you're really in close to it or you're working at a media agency. And I thought, well, why isn't there – you know, a brand that everybody knows in that space that is, you know, the leader. So that's what drew it, drew me to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it being public has some advantages. And I never really been involved in, um, uh, originally I was on the board before they made me chairman for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, so I also want to learn some new stuff and, um, I haven't been in close to that public company um, dynamic before. So uh, even though it's a lot of accountants and lawyers, at least it's accountants and lawyers saying things I haven't heard mm-hmm. before. So you're going to have accountants and lawyers at least, you know, like, John, don't say that when you're on the podcast or you're just going to get arrested. <laughs> so luckily there's editing. Yeah. Uh, did you ever read the magazine or seen it, uh, Flair? It came out for one year, 1969, I believe. Um, it was a pet project, uh, but but what's fascinating about it is she, the editor, I can't remember her name, convinced every advertiser to stick with one theme. Mm. So the the issue was called white wine, and every ad and article had to do with white wine. That's and amazing. it's an incredible thing to check out. Mm-hmm. Um, they have it at the Cooper Union School, and you can flip through it and, and buy it actually on eBay for forty bucks. It's a great idea. Yeah. Because they're doing just what you said with yeah. September Vogue, yeah. which is they're going to have the fashion ads interspersed with the uh, editorial, yeah. and it's all related and it's in they're indecipherable, and they both are valuable. John, John, circling back to Cito, share with us in a twenty nineteen, staying ahead of the curve and on this mobile path that you're on. Um, what does that actually mean? What strategic? Okay, that's a great question. So one of the things we're doing this year is the Brand Momentum Index. So think of it as it's a freemium LinkedIn model. We're going to track all these major brands and we're going to tell you today 
is, uh, you know, on uh, a holiday shopping day, right? Um, who won President's Day weekend and who went where and all these insights for free? Or um, we're telling you everybody that went to every single Starbucks and, you know, which ones did well, which ones didn't. We're going to give you all of this real-time tracking about all of these brands for free. And then when you go, oh, I want to know more. Uh, tell me, um, Mr. Starbucks, tell me what happened here and here. Oh, yeah. Okay. Then that's the premium part that you have to pay for. So I think that's pretty cool to to kind of adapt that model um, considering, you know, when we were talking about subscriptions as a new media model and that's for the, that, that, that's for the publisher. But for an ad tech company – to say, hey, we're going to do a new model also um, that's a freemium model. I think that's pretty cool and it'll it's a great way to sample the product um, and uh, I think it'll be interesting and work. Loving this croissant, loving that I am at even with John at minus three uh, for everybody keeping score. Um, we want to get into some more personal questions before I do. Um, I want to ask you about – you have a great story with my boss, Gary V. Love him. He's the best. Um, but, uh, but give me your, give us your Gary V story. Okay. Well, let me give context first, right? So when I started the agency, um, I went all around to anybody I thought had anything to offer and I asked them questions, right? So I always said the agency wasn't the best agency when we started, but most people had started agencies. They were older than us. They had their way of doing things and that's how they did them. What was different about us was we knew we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> and so we were open to evolving and then we passed all of those agencies. And so I'm, I, I, I'm very big on people uh, who are okay being dumb. And Gary Vee, even though now he's this pundit and you see all the stuff he spits out, um, after I sold the KB to MDC, I was investing in a bunch of things and one of them was a social media agency and then the board said, well, we want to sell it and I think we could sell it for more money if you're the CEO. I said, okay. I don't, I don't have a Facebook account. I have zero followers but okay. <laughs> I'll figure it out. So I did that and we sold it. But during that period, I got this call from Gary V. He said, I don't know anything about the agency world. I was in the wine business, my family, and can I come over and pick your brain? What year is this? This is 2011. Okay. And he had 30 people. I'll never forget it. And he came over and he asked me a zillion questions. And I said, that guy's going to do real well because he's asking questions and he knows what he doesn't know. Uh, so everyone knows Gary Vee is the person telling, but I'm actually more impressed when I met him as the person asking. Hmm. Yeah. It's amazing when you look at successful people and you find like things where, you know, see how they started and it's no surprise that it's pretty common. There's a common thread between all of them. Coming up, a glimpse at the personal side of John and a Donald Trump story you have to hear to believe. Entrepreneurista, a woman who organizes and operates a business, taking on greater than normal financial risks in order to do so. One who has a drive, passion, and vision with an undying determination to succeed. She is fiercely motivated, ambitious, and competitive, forging her own path to independence and success. That's an entrepreneurista. 
Through the conversations on the Entrepreneurista podcast, we want to celebrate failures, reflect on successes, and get unfiltered about what it takes to be your own boss. This is the Entrepreneurista podcast presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurstopodcast.com. All right, John, want to, you know what, let's get, I want to get into your background and, you know, before you read David Ogilvy's book, what did you think you were going to end up doing? Where did you think you'd be right now? Not where I am. You know, I had no idea. Um, I was a psych major, but then I got sick of it. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. And I had no idea. And I think people today over, um, over strategize on what their future is going to be. And then they don't have a chance to have serendipity happen because they've closed off most of those options. And I think it should, it just should be okay for people to not know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Do you think, I, do you think I was that chasing girls <laughs> and uh, playing some sports and uh, doing illicit drugs? And that's kind of what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what's your sport? Uh, let's say play basketball, soccer, baseball. What do you think that that's a great piece of advice? Cause I think a lot of people lose perspective. What do you think if you were to tell that 21 year old messenger at the time and you were to tell him, don't worry about having it all figured out, just have enjoyed the serendipity. How do you think that 21 year old, you would have taken that advice? Oh, then I would have thought that was a great idea. But, um, but I also had the pressure to figure out something. Um, but you, you got to wait till something hits you that you really want to do. At least for me, I, I could never go, well, I could make a lot of money if I'm an investment banker looking at these spreadsheets. I was never the person that could do that. Um, so I, as I said, I think you got to be open and you got to sample a lot of things and be okay that your friends are all – they're – you know, they got an MBA from Harvard and there it is and they're an investment bank and I'm like, I'm the loser. Got to be okay with that. And I don't know. I think today's generation is much more okay with that. But when I was a kid, people weren't okay with it. My parents were and that's the good news. Uh, not that they they did stop writing me checks. So. <laughs> um, on the on the topic of, of, of personal sort of uh, stories, storytelling, oh no. Negative one point. Minus one. Um, tell me about either – it could have been a colleague, could have been a boss, someone that had uh, some role in shaping the person that you are professionally today. It could be by ad- admiration, uh, et cetera. Uh, I never worked at really great agencies and had that mentor. Um, you know, there are people I met really since then that I've learned a lot from even people I hired to work for me that I learned from a lot of a lot of people from shite day in the early days and they were like well this is what a really good agency is I'm like cool this is is fun I like this you know uh you know David Bell to me I, I always said if there was one person that 
would have, I would have liked to have as a mentor would be David Bell. David Bell is, I don't know, in his 70s or something. He was CEO of IPG and he's the hippest 72-year-old on the planet. This guy can tell you about all the latest ad tech. He can tell you about anything. He's on it, man. And I always say one of my one of my quotes is, I, I hate change. You know, I loved going to shutters and shooting million-dollar commercials. That's over. I just hate being irrelevant more. And you have to do more and more work as you get older to be relevant because it's not native. And that freaking David Bell, man, he is my idol in terms of somebody that is like, you know, Socrates or somebody that's just always relevant, always mm-hmm. on it. Um, so that's cool. That's cool. Is there what I love about just he- hearing your background and just like you were like you weren't at the A-list agencies, right? There you it's almost like you were in this role where you were always in the underdog role, right? You didn't. So what? Did that help shape your um, you at all? Like, did you thrive off that, or like, was it a frustration point, or was it something that gave you energy and just almost push you that much further? No, it definitely gave me energy. You know, a little chip on the shoulder never hurts. <laughs> um, my partner when I started the agency, Richard Kirschenbaum, was working at J. Walter Thompson, and his boss was Jim Patterson, who was the creative director. And Jim Patterson was in the office 5 a.m. every morning working on his first novel, 5 to 8 every morning. Hmm. And we had this Kenneth Cole freelance account. And one day he's like, I was doing those Kenneth Cole ads. He walks through the whole creative department with this ad, comes into Richard's office. And Richard goes, oh, well, that's my freelance account. And he's like, well, bring it into the agency. And that's when we went, maybe this is something. (laughs) We started Hmm. the agency, had this New York Times article the first day. Uh, Phil Doherty was writing the ad column hmm. and he said, how old are you guys? I'm 28, 27. He goes, I got socks older than you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's amazing. when nobody that age started agencies like Mad Men, you know, now people do it all the time. Right. But back then it's like, who do you think you are You're starting your own agency? And like, no one's ever heard of you. You don't have any clients. You don't have any money. And you know, um, what was that like those first early years? Uh, it was a lot of fun because within six months of starting the agency, we had this seven-page article in New York Magazine when there was print. Uh, the headline was Hot Copy. Then we had Barbara Walters mm-hmm. did 20 minutes on us. That's wow. phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Six that months. is amazing. At 28 years old. Like. Yes. <laughs> and was yes. that all driven by just the need to have fun or was that driven by the fact that you thought we can we can do something here, something meaningful? Uh, it was driven by – we did. We had a billboard in Soho, and it said Soho, home of hip restaurants, boutique shopping, and self-promoting ad agencies like Kirschenbaum and Bond. Uh, <laughs> yeah, self-promotion. Um, because I didn't want to wait, you know, years to have the agency become famous. And if you're famous first, then you get revenue and clients. Uh, so everyone thought we were really big and uh, and half of them hated us and in the industry because we were young and we were obnoxious. And so because half of them hated us, especially the old guard, we made up these T-shirts that we all wore. And it said, I'd never work for those fucks or F <laughs> at Kirschenbaum Bond. And we all wore these T-shirts. <laughs> <That's> Amazing. <right. laughs> what a... Um- 
What do you, what still gets you remembering? It's, I love listening to you talk about the early years of your agency because I can feel that energy kind of come back. What, now you've done so many things. What still gets you excited like that, like those early days when you were like, we don't know what the F we're doing, but like, and you, you were having success. Like what still gets you excited and keeps you motivated in this, those days, these days? Well, I still think it's an idea business, having an idea the the, the, the machine won't tell you the idea. It might tell you if it worked or not. Um, I think the two things, right? Uh, a really great idea that really changes the dynamic of something and really interesting people that aren't boring. I've got a very low boredom threshold, I hate to admit it. Uh, no surprise there. Uh, and uh, I'm going to – I'm working on this book. I did this book under the radar 20 years ago, um, which was I think way ahead of its time. And I look at it sometimes and go, oh, hey, we said that was going to happen and it did. And it was all about – a lot about word of mouth and all the things that are that are obvious today. And uh, I started working on this book um, called Gods and Charlatans about marketing and the advertising industry. And um, it, 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 I started off on really more of an academic, here's where – what you need to know and all that sort of stuff. And then I go, well, that's kind of boring. I don't want to read that. And that's when I went back to this to David Ogilvy Confessions of an Advertising Man. I go, it's the only book in the industry I think ever written that is uh, equally um, pragmatic in terms of telling you stuff you can use and a good read and interesting. So I said, okay, I'm only going to do things that are – give me something – that's a value and are interesting. So I really started thinking of all of these points and then finding all these crazy stories uh, to illustrate them. So if you want, I'll tell you. Give us a snippet for the chapter, the latest chapter. Um, All right. I'm just going to give you a story, right? So here's a Donald Trump story, right? Worked for Donald Trump a couple of times. I don't think I ever got paid actually. You're not the Can only I one. Can I take that out of my taxes? Can we find that out? Okay. So one day um, he hires us – hires doesn't mean pays uh, – to launch the Trump Taj Mahal right before it was going to open. And um, we're working on this launch and just then uh, this whole affair he had with Marla Maples comes out and – the cover of the New York Post, the headline was, Best Sex I Ever Had Was With the Donald, signed Marla. And he loved that headline, by the way. Loved that headline. All right. Talk about, you know, he hated small hands, but he loved that headline. So about a week later, get this call at like seven in the morning. And it's Donna and Marla. And they're at the presidential suite at the Trump Taj Mahal before it's open, just checking it out, right? And they put them, they go on speaker. And Marla says, and I quote, I have the ad. Here's what happens. We're in bed just like we are now, in the presidential suite, just like we are now. And the camera zooms in on me. And I pop my head up from doing what I don't know. And I look at the camera and I say, best sex I ever had was at the Trump Taj Mahal. And Donald, you'll pay me a lot of money to say it. 
<laughs> I go, I don't, know. I don't know if that would be, you know, quite such a great idea. Anyway, true story. Wow. I wish that would, so it never got made. <laughs> no. Never, never, never went past made. that. Con- um, but it would have been interesting if it had. But uh, again, he loved that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, listen. <laughs> I'm going to challenge you to give us a final thought that tops that anecdote because that was a gem. I don't think there is one. (laughs) 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 Uh, Other than I I do want to credit the money to my taxes, Donald. Yeah. But final thought on, um, on just content and just what's, uh, what's up, what's in store for you and, and what we should be thinking about. I think it is moving from by the pound to better. I think this tiering system, subscriptions and all that sort of stuff, I think that's fantastic Um, because, as I said, I think uh, the internet sucks. And um, I think there's another issue with – there's all kinds of things um, uh, that are impacting content. Fraud, right? So fraud is the food. It's the fuel of the internet and fraud steals money that now I can't pay the creators to create anything, right? So therefore, I either have to get crap content or I have to pay for what I get. And I do think that there's some indirect things like fraud that need to be addressed to make the internet not suck and to help the creators so they can get paid to, to create something good. Or so that we can get more stuff free, which is also good. Yep. Love free stuff. Um, Last uh, note, through this podcast, we have so many different people from a wide swath of different content, want to make content, consume it. What connections are you looking to make for Cito or for you personally? Like what are what are the connections you hope to sort of like make out of this? Wow, that's a good question. Like you asked me if I can go pitch my own stuff on your show. I really appreciate that. That's fantastic. Um, well, Cedo is good. And uh, yeah, you know, I'm doing some consulting and uh, I kind of invest in startups and then help them do marketing and then hope someone comes and buys them. Uh, so that's I'll be pitching all of you on all of those. Uh, that I actually did talk to someone at Hearst. Oh, the other day. interesting. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> We'll uh, talk Dan after. Okay. about this film production technology that I invested in that shoots basically high-end product shots um, that you can shoot with people who aren't high-end uh, directors at a price. Uh, sent a note to Gary V on it. Never heard back. Huh? Anyway, so uh, uh, but thank uh, you for the for the yeah. Plug. Uh, I would love to hear about. Uh, I'd love to hear about this uh, technology. What, lastly, how can people find you if they want to connect with you? Uh, John Bond fifty seven at Gmail. J O N B O N D. That's sort of the all purpose email. Uh, or so personal emails. All right. Or do you want to do yeah, social no, media? That's fine. I, I might delete it if it's not good. But <laughs> <laughs> or if they use a buzz- buzzword. Yeah, if they use a buzzword, forget it. I'll never read it. I want to really thank John Bond with uh, Chairman of Cito Mobile, um, an incredible uh, stories. I wish we could listen to a myriad of more of them. I'm sure they're just as entertaining. Um, and I really want to thank everybody for listening um, wherever you're listening at. And with that, I want to thank Natasha. See you soon. And Michael. Catch you next time. And I'm Ritesh. Uh, thank you for joining us. Look forward to next episode. 
You've been listening to Content Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show or to become a sponsor, email us at contentshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. And episodes are available on our website, contentisyourbusiness.com, and wherever the best podcasts are found. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.